1: hello welcome along to a brand new episode of writer's routine this week we're chatting to d.l douglas whose brand new book dr Spilsbury and the camden town killer is out right now we talk about being inspired by real life historical figures and then giving them crimes to solve also how she refocuses her mind while she's switching genres throughout a year and we run through why she carries on working when things aren't going well she knows it isn't good for her but she does it anyway
2: that's what i should do really i should go away and do something else because that's when the ideas really spring and really develop in your mind when you're when, I know it's a cliche, but when you are cleaning the bathroom or the kitchen floor or cooking or something, that's when your brain relaxes and goes into a different mode. If you're sitting there at your computer, I think the worst thing you can do is sit there and wheel yourself to think of something, you know. The plots come when you're doing something else.
1: There is more with D.L. Douglas in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along to the show. My name's Dan Simpson and this is Writer's Routine where we take a look through an author's working day. We investigate every stone, we leave nothing unturned to figure out how they get an idea down. How do they plan their life, their space, their family, maybe other work? How do they do that to get a book out? And this week we are supported by Plotter. It is a writing software, and if you're like me, you might be quite disorganised. I think some of the spotty uh, release dates for this show uh, highlights perfectly that sometimes I let projects get away from me. Well, uh, Plotter is a fantastic tool for organising and focusing your writing and your story idea. It does what the title says. Plotter, it plots. It helps you plan your books the way that you think. It lets you outline faster, organise smarter, and it will turbocharge your productivity because when you open it, you get a digital corkboard with everything that you need for your novel on there. You can easily swap between timelines too. The outline Your notes, the details on your characters, your places, you can colour code everything so you can chop and change however you like, you never need to lose anything. It's like having a notebook on the screen but you don't have to carry it around with you, you don't need to flip back and forward between pages to find out that bit that you want, it's all there and easily trackable. Plotter helps you spend more time writing and less time worrying about everything else. It helps you strip back all the the, the nonsense and the fuss that we writers sometimes get a bit preoccupied with and just focuses on what is important. And Plotter are supporting the show for a little while. I'm very excited because we've sorted out a brilliant deal for you. So the best way for you to see what it does, how stunning it looks and how helpful it can be is by getting to go.plotter.com slash routine and taking a look around. And as I say, with that deal, you can get 10% off the software with the show on that link. I've stuck it in the episode notes wherever you're listening, so take a look around and get the deal if you fancy turbocharging your productivity and really organizing your writing time. Get to go.plotter.com slash routine. Now this week on the show we are chatting to DL Douglas and Donna Hay. For DL, see Donna. For Donna, see DL. As Donna Hay, she's published many saga stories, so uh, romantic, sometimes historic novels. Uh, she's also worked as a journalist and now is turning her hand, with a pen in it, uh, towards crime. Her debut as DL Douglas is Dr. Spilsbury and the Camden Town Killer. It features uh, a real life 1920s forensic pathologist, Sir Bernard Spilsbury. They don't name people like that anymore, do they? Uh, It's a golden age mystery that meets CSI. And we talk about that switch from saga to crime, how she manages it through a year, how she can switch her brain to a different work mode, which she finds can be quite tricky when both stories are dipping into the medical world. Also... Uh, We run through, in reality, how different publishers actually deal with her having two different publishing deals with different companies. We talk about how she structures her stories, why her dreams of a whiteboard became a bit overwhelming in reality. And, big news, a real take-home, we get a new acronym to plan the workday around. There's a lot on the way, so let's dive into it. With D.L. Douglas, and we kick things off as we always do, what does she see around her in the place where she sits down to write?
2: Well, if you'd asked me this a few years ago, it would have been very different. When I first started um, on my novels, I had a section of the garage at the back, and I literally mean it was partitioned off from the garage. So it was very cold in the winter. It had a tiny sliver of window um, that looked over the neighbor's brick wall. And so it wasn't most inspiring view. The idea of it was that it wouldn't distract me at all. But it's amazing how much you can stare at a blank wall and take an interest in it. I was still just as distracted, but just very cold and a bit depressed really. So a few years ago we we did some work on the house and um, I actually got the whole garage and it's turned into a room so it adjoins the house and um, it's much bigger and the whole idea was going to be a very sort of zen space and um, it's just largely become a dumping ground as as sort of large rooms tend to be but uh, I do have I have a window where I can now stare out at the world Um, but my pride and joy is my l-shaped desk I love a big desk I tend to spread out so I have one one part of the desk where I have my my pc to to write on and then the other bit um, theoretically is where I if I want to write sort of longhand or I want to do some research or reading. I mean in in practice it's again becomes a dumping ground for half half thought out notes and reference books and all that sort of thing but I do have the space and I do love the space and uh and behind me um is a wall of bookshelves where I have um not that many novels but mainly loads of reference books. Going back, you know, it's mainly medical, medical and pathology textbooks, that sort of thing, and biographies. So yeah, that's that's
1: it. So you start off writing in this kind of secluded space that you've annexed yourself.
2: I'd say a cell.
1: <laughs> a cell. And then you then you get the chance to I know there's other stuff going on in there because I know that you're busy outside of writing, but you have the chance to slightly Design a space that you want to use for writing as well, so what did you learn when you were in the cell that made you think about what you needed to have in a writing space when you eventually managed to almost build it
2: that way? I felt that I needed light and air, which I think are basics to human beings, but uh, something i didn't have a lot of i need I needed a view i need, I mean I only look out onto the street, but it's that link to humanity. Um, that I didn't get in in my little sort of little box Um, and space as well you know I mean it I just have this big desk is such a luxury so yes and just lots of white space around me I'm not a clutter person I'm very much not a clutter person I I couldn't work with lots of knickknacks and bits around me so I I tend to keep it all minimal and that goes for the rest of the house as well but uh, Yeah, very much so in
1: here. So you've got your reference books behind you a lot on pathology and we'll talk about the next book which is all about forensic pathology in just a second. When you're coming to research and uh, read around what you want to write very simply how do you know where to start? I mean you've got um, uh, your books are set in the 20s so you've got Over a hundred years worth of history to kind of pick apart there. How do you know where to begin to look things up?
2: Um, That's hard, and sometimes it will work the other way. Sometimes I'll be looking one thing up and then I'll discover something else, and I think, oh, actually, that would be much better. That would make for a much better story. That would be much more interesting. So it's it's hard to sit and read a pathology textbook I have to admit they're not the most riveting read and they they can be quite grueling to look at um but uh, I yeah I tend to start with a rough idea of of how I you know how someone died but then I'll I'll pick up other things on the way and and the textbooks are mainly sort of Encyclopedias, if you like, so you know everything's laid out there, there quite well. And some sometimes I'll read a biography of a forensic pathologist, obviously not from necessarily from the twenties um, when things were a lot different. But um, and that will spark me off on an idea of you know a plot or or a, some a grisly death or what have you.
1: And you say you like it clutter-free around you. I mean, we've got the the window with that all-important light. Is it Is there anything kind of productive to your writing that's maybe on the walls? I'm talking about plot points or post it notes
2: Oh, now this um I always wanted a whiteboard because I felt that writers had to have one. And I I very much like, I like to, you know, put post-its on things. And, and I had visions of having this whiteboard and, you know, plotting out. And, all. I, and it, I didn't go, didn't do things by halves. It's a pretty huge whiteboard. I can't lie. Um, but I felt overwhelmed and intimidated by it once it was on the wall. I, I felt like I couldn't live up to it. And I almost didn't want to write anything on it and um and so i did stick a, i did for a while do a bit of plotting and and stick some post its on but now i use it more as as a sort of personal writing planning rather than a plot planning I, I use it as a sort of i if my writing goals for the for the month and the week and the day i'll put those on in post its and um i think i think the system is called kanban i found it somewhere and it, it's a it's a system that was um, used by a, a motor company, gosh, in the last century, and um, it's it's meant to be a good productivity tool. I'm not sure I use it properly. I mean, I just I just see the deadlines whizzing by, really, my goals. But uh, so it comes. Sometimes it can be a little bit sort of demotivating to have that. But
1: well, I've I've never heard of Kanban before. Just so just. Uh... What type of things are written on this kind of productivity whiteboard? Is it like day word count, week word count? Here's where I need to get my first draft in.
2: Well, yes and no. You A Kanban, you divide it into columns, and on the left hand side, you have the goals you want to achieve ultimately, you know, in whatever time frame for that year or whatever. Um, and then you have a, another column, which is the to-do, which is you've broken down those goals into, say, um, goals for that month that will move towards that, your, your ultimate goal. And then you have the next column is doing, which is sort of that week's work. And then you have the fourth column, which is done. Not many things get to the done column, I have to say. Um, there's an awful lot in the doing at the moment, which uh, is, can be quite uh, overwhelming. You have to be a bit careful about what you put in there because you can just uh, do your head in, really. But, yeah, it, it looks good. And it's a good use of the whiteboard. It looks very colourful.
1: <laughs> um, it intrigues me. When, when you got the whiteboard, um, at when you were writing, obviously, and now you're writing kind of forensic pathology, old-school detective novels, and... And that seems key with the structure of some of those. I know that you started off uh, publishing quite a few saga novels. When you made the switch uh, between the genres, how much did you need to rethink how you were plotting and structuring a novel? Because without being too glib or reductive, I would imagine that planning more detective crime stories with a lot of red herrings floating around is somewhat different to... Writing and plotting saga stories. How much did you think about that switch?
2: You're absolutely right. They're they're completely different. Um, I still write sagas. I write a saga every year and a crime novel every year. So I switch between the two, which is is quite satisfying. Really, it appeals to both sides of my brain. And um, yes, uh, plotting a crime novel is is like it's like putting together a puzzle. It's very much. Plot driven whereas sagas are very much character driven um, the the whole plot emerges from from the characters and and the readers love those really love those characters and want to know what 's going to happen to them next and um it 's much more sort of emotional, if you like, whereas the crime novels are very plot driven i mean they do have some strong characters in them, some strong ongoing characters, but they 're very much um very much puzzle pieces put together and so it the plotting is a a lot more um intricate I would say
1: and that switch halfway through the year I mean we'll come more to your writing life in just a tick but kind of switching from saga to crime halfway through a year immediately having to refocus a, a, a di- almost a different part of your brain it, what helps you with that transition if you like what do you do to just say okay now i'm in this mode
2: um well it, it's almost like the year is divided into two i mean um spillsbury the crime novels take the first half of the year and leading up to christmas are the sagas so uh it's it's almost sort of almost like a calendar thing um but one does tend to bleed into the other because obviously you submit your your novel but then it comes back for editing copy editing proofreading so you you you're in the world, I'm in the world of the 1950s nursing saga, and and then I'm dealing with like a dead body circa 1920 floating in. And sometimes because they're both vaguely medical, which helps. They're both are sort of a vaguely got a vaguely medical theme. Um, I do find myself getting quite confused between, you know, am I dealing with 1920s medical matters or 1950s, you know? So. They, there is a bit of a blurring, but uh, but I, I quite enjoy it. I mean, there was a time when I was writing two sagas a year and um, that was very draining. I, I, I find that writing one sets me up to write the other.
1: You're talking about draining, how do you find that way of focusing your year? I mean, I, I work freelance, right? So I, I know what's coming tomorrow and maybe the next week, but perhaps not the next month. And I find that Isn't good for my bank balance, but it's quite good for like me mentally. That I'm, uh, there's always something different. There's always something unique, and that that keeps things a bit exciting and spontaneous. What's it like for a writer being quite ingrained in a a calendar of work that has been predetermined? Uh, uh, How do you find that ongoing process of writing one then another? then going back to crime, now saga, then crime, then saga. Do you, do you find sometimes the year flies by without you really realising?
2: Oh, yeah, it, it really does fly by, uh, very much so. I mean, six months is not a tremendously long time to write a novel. I, I was what, listening to someone um, on another, it may have been your one of your podcasts, and they were talking about taking two or three years to write a, a novel. And I, I was just, thought, oh, wow. Can imagine that and I think I would find that quite boring. You know, I do like to the momentum. I mean, I, I consider myself quite lucky as a novelist um to know or as a writer because I used to be a freelance journalist um when I, I went until I started writing the novels full time. And um I hated that feeling of not knowing what was going to happen next week. I, I'm very much a person who likes to know. What they're doing, and and I think it's been a real luxury for me to have like a, th- a three book contract for the sagas and a three book contract for Spillsbury. So knowing they, those are my years for that, it's the first time, gosh, in donkeys years, I've actually known what I'll be doing next year, and it's uh, it's quite a nice feeling, really.
1: Just just lifting the curtain on the inside world of publishing. I'd imagine your saga and uh spills redeals are kind of with different publishers right yes
2: yes they are
1: how how almost accommodating are one to the other like uh, publishers get the game they understand that you are a writer who needs to earn money who needs to pay the bills who's got a lot of creativity and wants to write outside of maybe what you're contracted in for them um does that ever come a cropper
2: oh yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) i naively i didn't think it would um I thought, oh, you know, it's, I'm working for you six months a year. I'm working for you six months a year, but you know, you're working for two, albeit friendly, rival companies, and uh, they're not all. They, why would they're not sympathetic? But why would they be? You know, I, I don't think I would be in their position. They've got they they've got me contracted to write a book, and they expect all my time and all my attention and all my care to that book. So they're not going to be too worried if, I mean, they're not going to be too sympathetic if I said, "Look, you know, I'm going to have to deliver this late because I've got uh, extra copy edits to do on the previous on this other person's book." They'd be like, "Yeah, right, you know, don't think so." I am a real early morning person. My my ideal day would be starting work at sort of six in the morning and having the satisfaction of getting sort of 10am and knowing that I've done half a day's work. I mean, when I'm, when I'm doing, when I'm working in the winter, it will be dark outside. It's dark outside late anyway, but um, it'll be dark outside. And it'll be real satisfaction to have two hours work done before the milkman delivers the, the bottles on the step. I, I love to work early. Now, having said that, I like to do most things early. So obviously being stuck at your desk, you do need to exercise. So during the pandemic, I, I took up running and I, I enjoy running. But again, that's something I like to do first thing in the morning. So it's a bit of a tussle usually to sort of which I do first. So I tend to get up, go if I'm not massively on a on deadline. And by that, I mean the deadline hurtling towards me. A month. Um, I'll go for a, a run or you know do some other exercise and then I'll try to get to my desk by half past seven, eight o'clock at the latest. And um I find I do most of my useful work before noon. Uh, after midday, I still I I have lunch and then I go back to work, but quite honestly, it's the law of diminishing returns. I might as well not bother because I'm just Distracted. I'm watching YouTube. I'm watching pathology on YouTube. I'm, you know, I'm wandering about the house. Any excuse to get away from my desk. So really, I I should do do something else in the afternoons. But I say to myself, no, no, you sit and work. You know
1: what? What makes for a good writing day? What are you happy with getting done by noon?
2: Well, I I'm a very fast writer. I'm. I mean, sometimes I shock myself. Um, again, I, I see other writers who say, "Oh, you know, I do a thousand to two thousand words a day." Oh, when I'm heading for peak deadline, um, I've been known to do four or five thousand words a day. Um, I write fast. When when it's flowing, I write super fast. So that there's no the, as long as I've written something on a some days just. Well, everybody has good days and bad days, but some days when the plot's just not plotting, you know, I'm lucky if I get sort of a 1,000 words out and I'm lucky if I don't delete 800 of those the next day. It's like pulling teeth sometimes.
1: Well, that's what I wanted to touch on. When you're writing, say, 4,000 words in a day and and you're getting to the end, so you know at that point time is very tight. How much can you afford to make those wasted words almost to, to, to have the knowledge that you're right, you're getting a lot done now, but you're shooting yourself in the foot because it's going to make the editing a lot trickier in a, a couple of weeks time.
2: I mean, that that's the thing I've, I've, I've been doing it for so long. I'm so in the sort of zone of it that there aren't that many wasted words. There can be a, a the sticky bit tends to be a little bit earlier on. I mean, by the time I get, by the time I get to the deadline, um, I have, will have written a couple of drafts of it. So the deadline will be, I mean, my my way of writing it is not a way I'd recommend to anybody. We can come into that later. But by the end of it, um, when I've decided to rewrite the book, usually with about three weeks to spare, I know very much where it's going and what, what's meant to happen. So that last sort of three weeks to a month, very few words are wasted. It's early on in the process that, all the fiddly faddling goes on
1: and starting work early I mean even being a morning person it's it's very tough for someone to just leap out of bed and plonk themselves straight into the chair Uh, how do you almost warm up to that even if it is 6 a.m
2: oh I no, I I am the the only thing I have to do I mean I sit here in my pajamas at 6 a.m as long as I've got a cup of tea then I'm fine, I'm good to go, you know, and I find it's best not to think about it because if I do anything beforehand, even as I said, the exercise and the running um it can take ages to get to my desk. I literally need to get out of bed and get to my desk, and I'm there, you know, and that's when the most productive work happens.
1: You mentioned in the afternoon, it's pretty unproductive work. How much is is the the idea still floating around your brain or are you all right at switching off at one, two and dealing with everything else?
2: No, no, no. It's always there. when you're right, it's it's always there. In fact, it's probably there more when you're not sitting at your desk. Um, It's... Again, that's what I should do, really. I should go away and do something else because that's when the ideas really spring and really develop in your mind. When you're, when I know it's a cliche, but when you are cleaning the bathroom or the kitchen floor or cooking or something, that's when your brain relaxes and goes into a different mode. If you're sitting there at your computer, I think the worst thing you can do is sit there and will yourself to think of something, you know the plots come when you're doing something else
1: when you sit down to write every day and i know that you've got uh, various what like ways of organizing yourself how much of an idea of what you're going to get written that day do you have are you kind of uh, just freestyling it as you go is there a thorough idea of where you want to get to by noon
2: no i'm i'm so time dependent that i Again, probably from the journalistic background, I have to know what i'm doing that day, and I have a set like i'm going to write a- i'm going to write two scenes today I'm going to write you know a chapter today um i yeah and i i stay until i've done that now the The thing I've found is if i am going somewhere say later in the morning or like you know talking to you or what have you um then, and I only have two and a half hours to to write that scene, I will write it in two and a half hours. If I have the whole day to do it, I will take the whole day. Now, so I, that makes no sense. But, you know, time, I guess work expands, as they say, to fill the time available.
1: Well, here's what's interesting. Most people say, in answer to this question, when I say, "What do you do when writing is getting tough and the words aren't coming out?" They'll say, "I go for a walk." Whereas you seem so, like time focused, and you do your running in the morning. That's your exercise done. So, what do you turn to then when it is getting
2: tough to get those words out? I, I do, ex- I do, I do go for a walk. Yeah, I mean, I do. If it's too much, I will. What I'll do sometimes is turn to writing something out in longhand, or I'll write some notes, or I'll write around it. I'll usually, if if you're blocked, it will be um, there'll be a variety of reasons, but um, one of, one of them might be you're telling the story from the wrong point of view. You're using the wrong character's viewpoint to tell the story, um, or perhaps you don't understand the character enough. You, you haven't so I'll I'll perhaps get my notebook or perhaps I'll go out with my notebook um or I'll just go for a walk and think and I'll I'll think about whether, you know, the chapter could be better told from a different point of view or I'll I'll write out a, a sort of biography of the character and that quite often points up clues as to ah oh, no I should approach it this way. So so that I mean there's there are ways that if you're blocked to sort of go get around it but yeah I do go for a walk or as I say I'll go and clean something or pull up a few weeds or something and get the brain going that way
1: We'll be back with more from D.L. Douglas Donna Hay, in just a second. If you're enjoying the show, remember you can always support us over on our Patreon page. It helps us carry on. It helps me kind of dedicate the time to getting you a chat and a podcast with a brilliant author as often as we can. Uh, For that, you get merch. There is thanks. There is bonus episode. There is even a way for your book to sponsor this show. And it doesn't cost a lot. It doesn't require much. I promise. Just a few dollars a month really helps us carry on. It helps me bring you these chats with some of the best authors that I can. And I really appreciate any support that you can uh, send my way over at patreon.com. That's where you pledge. You get access to our uh, Patreon board there where we're throwing up questions and we're kind of sharing ideas now and then. It's at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Let's get back to it then with DL Douglas, Donna Hay, chatting about her brand new crime novel, Dr. Spillsbury and the Camden Town Killer. We run through what she always tells herself when she starts a book and then naturally, promptly forgets. Also how she tried to find the voice of Dr. Spillsbury and the angle that she finally used to reach it. And we pick things up talking about her busy year writing two styles of books. Really? Two genres completely alien with each other as well. Switching between both of them. When does she start thinking about what project might be next?
2: the the idea um, will have formed already i mean when i'm writing the last say the last the last spillsbury i've already got a sort of an idea for where to take the characters next time what they, a setting i'd be interested in pursuing so while i'm i'm writing the other one i those are in the back of my brain i'm thinking and thinking like you know I'm, finishing off the Spillsbury the next Spillsbury now. Um, and I have ideas in the back of my head for the Nightingale. So I will, and as, as I say, it's a messy process because you you submit um, your, your manuscript for Spillsbury, but that's not the end of it. As, as you know, by any means, you'll get editor's comments back, then you'll get copy editor's comments back, then you'll get the proofs. And that will be carrying on. So I can't sort of, oh I'll finish all that and then start the night ago. So I've got to switch between at that stage. Um so yeah I would I would make a note of all the characters and for a saga say um where I want them to be um, what what I want what I want to explore in that in that book. Um, or with Spillsbury I'll have you know a particular like the book I'm writing at the moment, I'm um, just finishing The Cursed Bride. I had an image of a woman in a wedding dress, you know, having thrown herself or fallen. From a from a tower on her wedding day, and that was the image in my mind. And I just thought, well, who could she be? What's her background? Who's she marrying? And and that was going through my mind while I was writing the the Nightingale. But uh, but yeah, then I'll I'll just make some some notes, and then I'll do a really rough first draft. Um, if anybody saw it, they, I mean, it bears no relation to anything that could be published, but. I I I write that, and I do a lot of planning. I mean, this is what I mean by my my method is not to be recommended to anybody. Um, and funnily enough, I was listening to an interview with um, Claire MacIntosh, the crime writer, and she does it in exactly the same way as I do. And I thought, thank God, it's not just me, because what what i do is lots of planning i get the post its out i get the little note cards out i write all the scenes um I, on my you know on my imaginary court board and i'm i'm sort of figure it got them all laid out my desk you know all the different viewpoint characters and all their you know everything that they're doing and how the plot moves and on the narrative arcs and then i write a draft based on that and then i realize it's absolute rubbish and then, with about a month or so to go i'll write I'll write the real book and And this is what I've always said I have to write the wrong book before I write the right one, and that's why I'm always hurtling towards a deadline because that's when the best ideas come. I've almost had to go through that that whole planning process to realize for the characters to take on the life that they should take on, and for me to then fly with it and that's when the words are flying out by the end you know
1: here's here's what I, here's what i don't understand about that <clears throat> you publish many books now um why accept that why accept that as the way this gets done if you know what is needed to make a character uh, authentic and believable you've got your plotting down you know the uh, twists and turns that a crime novel needs to have why allow yourself to waste time writing the wrong novel why can't that be fixed now
2: oh dan i wish i knew the answer to that every time i write a book i say i am i say to my husband i am never be putting myself in this position again i know exactly what you said i know what i need to do now and in fact the last nightingale that I wrote um I I put that into practice. I, I, I thought I'm not going to do all this planning and this post-its and all this. I'm I'm I know in my head roughly the plot. I know where it starts and I know where it ends and I know and I just started to write and I remember saying to another writer a friend of mine I'm just doing I'm just winging it this time because you know And she just looked at me and went, Well, good luck with that. And I was still in the same position because I don't know what it is. It's almost, as I say, like I have to write the wrong book before I write. None of it's wasted, though. It's all exploring ideas and, um, you know, within a certain structure. But it's only maybe I'm just a homework at the last minute kind of person. Maybe it's the journalistic kind of rush of the deadline that gets the gets the thinking going. I'm not sure.
1: What is it about the wrong book when you're writing that first draft that makes you realise this is the wrong book? What tends to happen when you get that clarity and you think, oh, okay, all right, maybe this should be what I do
2: with it? It's when I'm trying to fit the characters to the plot that I've decided. Um, That's where it all goes wrong. I've I've perfectly I've plotted it perfectly. The characters need to be doing this in order for this to happen because it's very tightly plotted. Um, if they need to be in this position to find out this. They need, and when you write it, you realize it's just wooden. It's like you're you're forcing the characters into doing something because it suits your plot rather than it's something they would do i mean it it sounds so posy to say oh the characters take over but in a in a good book they do and you do find yourself sort of um you're in a position where you're you're um they do take over and and uh, they start doing other things and you, you and it within your plot and you you think oh you know actually this would be better it would be better if they met them this way or that way or they met that person instead or they were the, they interacted with this person and then that of course that ruins your all your post-its and you're tearing them up and and that's when and that's when it so it's not wasted it's not wasted at all all the planning and it does go into it but the the the, the last draft of my novel bears very little relation to the the first one I was researching Nightingale books, and um, I, I did a lot of research within hospitals, um, looking at their their ward books and that sort of thing to get a feel for, for how nurses, you know, what the hospital life was like, because at, at the time in the 1930s, and um, I went to Bart's hospital, and um, in the course of my research in their archives, their fantastic archives, I came across dr Spilsbury, um, who was a home office forensic pathologist and then as luck would have it i was talking to a, a friend um, and she um she was a, she approached me about um maybe doing some fictional sort of real life fiction if you like um featuring dr Spilsbury, and uh and i that I I looked into it, I read some biographies of him and I, I just thought, what an amazing character. But um the the project fell through because I, I just said, you know, didn't feel that fictionalizing his real life cases was was something that I wanted to do. Um but he was he stayed in my mind for a couple of years after that. Um because he was And the thing about it is I don't, many people haven't heard of him, but he was a superstar in the 1920s. I can't understate his celebrity. He was a very complex character, but he was involved in some of the hugest cases in the sort of early 20th century from Crippen to the Brides in the Bath. He was involved in, an Edith Thompson, he was involved in lots of these cases and, and, uh, lots of, misca- quite a few miscarriages of justice as well, I have, it has to be said. Um, such was the, the force of his personality. So I thought, you know, he would be a great character because although he was a forensic pathologist, he was also a bit of a sleuth as well. He would be very much involved in the police investigations. So
1: you've you've got that, you know, it's finally dawned on you that you want to write about a real life character and to fictionalize him which is not something you've necessarily done before how 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 did you start i mean you enter into this with some trepidation but you want to put your own stamp on someone who really existed where did you begin
2: that that was kind of hard actually harder than i than i thought it would be um i i read all these biographies and i i wanted to stay true to him but he was a very, um, he was a larger-than-life character, but he was also very reserved. He didn't write any autobiography. Um, he didn't publish any any um, papers or anything during his lifetime. And people who knew him had very strong views about him. And they felt quite often that he was quite arrogant um, and hard to get to know. And writing a character like that is quite difficult because you want your readers to kind of warm to him. You know, you want them to be able to relate to him and warm to him. Um, And so I wanted to stay true to him as a character as far as I could make out what he was like, but I also wanted somebody somebody the readers would relate to. So what what I did in the end, um, I mean, there were a few aspects of his life I had to let go. I mean, he was married in real life, disastrously um he had um four children and um his his marriage fell apart because he was a workaholic and he neglected his wife and his children and um his marriage sort of fell apart um within sort of 20 years um so i i kind of and that was a complication i didn't need to be dealing with in the in the novels so i i kind of made him a single man for for just for ease of plotting, um, but uh, so what I've done is given him a pair of sidekicks because I thought, you know, you get Sherlock Holmes. He's not a warm and fuzzy, lovable character that everybody relates to, but you his entry level is sort of Doctor Watson. You see him through Doctor Watson's eyes, and you do relate to Doctor Watson a little bit more. Um, same with. Poirot and, and Hastings, you know, you, he's quite a distant figure, Poirot, um, but you you warm to Captain Hastings. He's someone you can relate to. So in in Spillsbury, I've given him two sidekicks. I've given him um, an assist or someone who becomes his assistant, this sort of working-class girl called Violet who's polar opposite of him um, which was an interesting dynamic. And I've also given a sidekick of a young detective constable so we can see the policing side of it a bit more. So that was how I, I tackled it. But it, it was quite difficult. It was quite difficult to get a handle on on Spilsbury, I have to say.
1: Uh, how long did it take for the, his voice to come through to you?
2: Quite a long time. Um, in fact, you know, really a long time. Um, I tried various angles with him. I, but in the end, I I made him some. I tried to go for the aspect of he, he. As one of his colleagues says, he understands everything about the dead, but nothing about the living. He's constantly puzzled by people's reactions and by human nature. He he's not a student of human nature at all. he, he he's completely at a loss. And so I think that's almost a, quite an endearing side to him. You know, he won't be able to read a situation, you know, in, in the same way that that's why he needs Violet, because Violet will sort of interpret for him and and see the undercurrents that he just doesn't see. But But that took a long time before I settled on that. I tried various various approaches and and none of them really did him any justice you know I mean he's a he's a very he was a very famous man but he was someone who wasn't comfortable with his fame at all.
1: I know we've discussed your plotting earlier in the show but with uh, Camden Town Killer how much did you kind of know about the entire thing when you sat down, I've spoken to some crime writers who have no clue who the murderer is until almost the last page, when the door is opened and the reveal happened. Uh, how, how much did you uh, sit down and consider everything before you began writing?
2: Yeah, it's fun. I was listening to um, the podcast interview you did with Tim Weaver, and I was shocked It literally stopped me in my tracks when he said that he has no idea because his books are so intricately plotted. I thought, what must his brain be like? I mean, mine, I plot a lot, you know. I mean, that—that as I've said to you, that plot is subject to change in the last month or so. As it was with the Camden Town Killer, I came up with a whole different subplot that cast a lot more light onto it and brought it all, added a richness to it. So... Um, but, no, the basic plot is very tightly done. I have to work out um, who knows what at what points because I've got three viewpoint characters as well. I have to work out, I know the, the murder, and I'm, I always know who the murderer is, always, um, at the end. I, I can't be sort of, oh, but, the, and it's hard for me because I think, oh, gosh, if I know, am I not telegraphing this to everybody? um which i think is a, is a real problem um but uh, i i the people I, I give to read it they they never see them see it coming so that's good but no i have i always know the murder and i always know who who did it um but uh, it's working out all the subplots and all the different all the suspects and what what their motive is and what information is available when it's it's how to drip feed information to the reader so you're not cheating them but you're not giving the game away either one
1: last question let's talk about the way they are written uh how much thought did you give to the the difference in style and the difference in well very simply words on the page and length of chapters and formatting of the book when you're switching between saga and uh crime
2: Mm. well I mean that's that's something that's kind of happened without a lot of thought. The the crime novels tend to have shorter chapters. Um, they tend to. I like to even with the sagas. I like to end end the chapters on a bit of a cliffhanger. Give a give the readers a reason to want to turn the page. You know, um, obviously in the sagas it's not going to be necessarily someone. With a knife in their back, um, it might be someone discovering a secret about someone else. But uh, the, the the crime novels tend to be a lot shorter and snappier, and and whereas the sagas you can kind of take it a bit longer. You know, you, the the format is a little bit sort of slower paced. So the pace is very very different between the two.
1: And that is it with D.L. Douglas. Donna Hay, thank you so much, Donna, for coming on the show. Uh, that brand new book is Dr. Spilsbury and the Camden Town Killer. A uh, historical golden age mystery meets CSI. I think it might really be up your street. We'll be back with a brand new episode same time next week. In the meantime, you can take advantage of that fantastic plotter deal we've got go.plotter.com slash routine also you can support the show patreon.com forward slash writers routine you can drop us a follow on x we are there at writers pod and you can get in touch with the show using the form over at writersroutine.com. and i will see you next week with a brand new author until then have a good one bye, bye.